Our scripture reading this morning is from Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 through 12. Revelation 7, verses 9 through 12. I trust you'll follow along in your own scripture or on the screen on either side of me. Starting with verse 9. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. At this time, children ages three through kindergarten are dismissed for a little landing. Good morning, Faith Family at the Landing. What a joy to come before this passage and expect with hope God to speak powerfully to us through it. Let's pray for that to happen. Father, I bring this band of dear believers together into your presence and ask for you to address us through Revelation 7. To the weary, I pray that you would address them with powerful strength. To the confused, I pray that you would address them with great clarity. To the guilty, I pray that you would address them with tremendous forgiveness and healing and grace. For those ready to give up, would you address them with sustaining grace and power and perseverance. For those who are beaten down, would you address them with kind hand to lift them up? For those confused or tempted by a high view of themselves, would you gently humble them? Do all those things and many more than I know to ask in me and in us, even, even transform the very trajectory of the life of our church because of this singular passage and its place in the book of Revelation and in the whole Bible. Come by the power of your Holy Spirit to teach us the glories of Christ in your word and achieve them in us. Not so that we just know about them, but that we dive into them and become part of them and they us. I ask it for his honor and glory, Jesus Christ. In that name, amen. The Christian life in this age, until Christ comes back, is a life of war. Sin remains on the earth and in us, but the Spirit has been granted and He is purifying for Himself a people for good works, Titus 2.14 says. Until Christ returns bodily, we hear the sound of the trumpet and the voice of the archangel. This life is a life of war. If ever Christians have gathered together in any place or any time and they've had ease and, and pleasant relaxation, that's weird. That's the aberration. The norm is this life is a battle and we engage in a battle of war. We fight 
for faith. We fight to hang on to our faith at night and in the morning and when bad news comes and when others are hurting and when questions come and doubts come, we fight for faith. We fight for joy when there are so many things that are tapping and removing and draining our joy away. We constantly strive and fight for joy. We fight for a witness to tell the truth. It's so easy to shrink back, but no, we know something deep inside of us wants to boldly proclaim the truth of who Christ is in a deceived and uh, truthless world. We fight for doctrinal purity. We, We look into the scriptures and constantly say, Lord, show me, teach me, instruct me, purify my thinking about you so that I worship and love you correctly. We fight for personal purity. There are temptations within us. Don't let me fall, Lord. Don't let me fall. Keep me, guard me, protect me, and when I fall, forgive me. We fight for personal purity. We fight for church unity. Don't let the landing or any church that you know and love be overtaken by some wolf who comes in to divide the sheep. And we fight for hope. There is reason to continue. There is reason to live. There is reason to doubt those those thoughts of self-harm or those thoughts of despair or those thoughts of darkness or those thoughts of utter meaninglessness to life. We fight for hope. The Christian life is a constant battle to fight for faith. So Paul said at the end of his life, I have fought the good fight and the Lord has stood by me. Revelation chapter 1, verses chapter 1 through chapter 6 can be summarized this way. In verses 1 through, chapters 1 through 3 rather, John is addressing the churches in Asia Minor and he's encouraging them. Seven churches which represent all of us throughout the history of the church of Jesus Christ. The way he does it is he says, conquer. It's a fighting word. Keep on fighting, he says. They are small little churches in small little cities. Some of those cities don't even exist anymore. But there was intense spiritual battle happening in every one of those churches' lives. And not only in the churches' lives in society, but even in their own hearts. So John says in chapters 1 through 3, conquer, conquer, conquer. Greek word is Nike, 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 from from which we get names like Nicholas. It it means the Christian life is a battle. you got to keep fighting. Don't slack off. Don't give in. Don't coast and put it in neutral. The whole point of singing and poems and music and preaching and banners and worship services and holidays and The whole point of your Bible and everything is that you would be a mighty warrior for Christ and not give in. Don't let people you love stray away from the fight. Nobody goes AWOL. Nobody lags behind. Nobody pulls away or commits treason and goes to the other side. That's the point of Revelation Chapters 1 through 3. That's why the book of Revelation has been so precious throughout the history of the church. It has been so precious because it's a call to war. It's a call to the utter reality that you cannot coast your way into heaven. It is indeed a fight. Chapters 4 and 5 are given to encourage the troops. It's this glorious image of Christ who is shown to John as both the Lion of Judah worthy to take the scroll and open its seals and the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And John sees that and he says, that's worth fighting for. That's the kind of power and glory 
and beauty and love and sovereignty that'll help me fight successfully. That's my king. Where's my sword? This beautiful image in chapters 4 and 5, as you saw before, and remember, John is weeping, and he hears from an elder, you don't need to weep anymore because there is someone who's worthy to open the scroll. It's the Lion of Judah, and he turns and he expects to see a Lion of Judah, but he doesn't see the Lion of Judah. He sees a lamb standing in the center of the throne. That's a gift to John. That's a beautiful gift where something is described one way and then seen another way so that we see something full and true and mysterious and yet wonderful about the very object that we're gazing at here, Christ. He is both and fully the Lion of Judah and he's the Lamb of God. He's not a mixture of the two. He doesn't bear the qualities of the other, one or the other like a compromise. No, he's a fully lamb and he's a fully lion. The same thing happens here in Revelation chapter 7. Before I show it to you, I want you to see the role that Revelation chapter 7 plays in the unfolding of the book of Revelation. The Lion of Judah, the Lamb of God, has begun opening the seals in chapter 6. And four horsemen run out. And then all these warnings about justice and judgment and wrath and chaos from God comes down on the earth. Even to the point at the end of chapter 6 where they say, I would rather rocks kill me than have to face the lamb. Who can stand before him? That's the lingering question at the end of chapter 6. Chapter 7 is given as an interlude before the final seal, the seventh seal comes. Everything else has been preparation. It's going to be bad. It's going to be bad. Oh, by the way, it's going to be really bad, which is all mercy, isn't it? For the Lord to come to the earth and say it's going to be really bad is a tremendous mercy. It's all evangelistic. Get saved and get everybody you know saved because the seventh seal is the unfolding of the final wrath of God and then it's too late. Such mercy drips from every verse of this book. Such mercy from God. Chapter 7 is this interlude, and it answers the question, who in fact can stand when the, when the wrath of God falls on the earth? Who can stand? There are those who can stand. John says, by the Spirit, let me show you who stands when the mighty wrath of God comes crashing down and everything on the earth is chaotic and destroyed and falling apart and the wrath of God is the cause of it all, who then can stand before the Lamb? Here indeed is the answer, chapter 7, who can stand. In the first picture we get in verses 1 through 8, we saw this two weeks ago, is a mighty army of the true Israel numbered 144,000. That's 12 times 12, times a 1,000. 12 faithful tribes of Israel, 12 apostles proclaiming the gospel to the Gentiles, times a 1,000, that's the military consensus for war. It's the church sealed by God, not one is missing, and fully ready to engage in battle on the earth. It's the church sealed and militant, as we saw two weeks ago. This is a beautiful and powerful picture that nobody is lost in the battle. This is a battle where there's no casualties of God's people. Not one. No one's lost. 
Everyone makes it through. A completely successful and triumphant war where all the children of God make it through and it's so important to God that they all make it through because his glory hangs on the fact that we all get saved. Think about your security and assurance in Christ. Your eternal security rests not on you working out all your efforts and trying to pray hard and live the best life and read the Bible and go to church and vote the right way and use your money the right way. Your security does not rest on any of those things. In fact, your security doesn't rest on you at all. Your security rests on a sovereign God who reaches down and says, my whole glory is bound up in you making it all the way to me. So you're going to make it all the way to me. I love your Glory so much, Lord, because your glory is my security. Your love for your fame and honor and praise is what causes me to rest rock-solid secure in God. And the 144,000 is a number perfectly defined as the triumphant, militant church fighting on the earth. The true Israelites. Think of how in the Old Testament, the national ethnic Israelites who are a a forerunner to the, to the true Israelites, the church. Think of how many battles they waged in. Every day, my devotions takes me through somewhere in the Old Testament, and Israel's always battling with somebody. They're always ticking somebody off, and somebody's ticked off at them, and they're always in trouble, and they're always battling. It's almost like there's a little bit of peace, and then the Lord leads them right into another battle again, which is a pointer forward to the fact that we're in a war all the time as the true Israel. The whole Old Testament is is there to show us this is exactly how God leads his militant church on the earth to fight in a battle we cannot lose. For we are fighting a war ruled over and owned by the sovereign glory of God in which his name and his son and his bride will be the victors. One of the books that I've read to try to understand the book of Revelation, I've read it actually for many years now. I even led several men in a Bible study through it back in Michigan in the year 2015, the fall of 2015, which in my life at at that time was one of the sweetest things that God could ever allow me to do is to take several dear friends. Uh, We met in a uh, Lake Orion library back room, uh, a public library, but we met openly and we went through the book of Revelation with the help of a commentary that I could not recommend to you more highly. I love it very, very much. It's been the book second most helpful to me than the Bible with regard to Revelation. It's called The Triumph of the Lamb by Dennis Johnson. The Triumph of the Lamb by Dennis Johnson. Listen to how Dennis Johnson helps to explain why we see 144,000, the church militant, and then in the verses Paul just read, Another vision right after it of a number of people in heaven so big we can't even number it. Who are these two groups? Are they two separate groups? Are they one? Listen to what Dennis Johnson says. This is so helpful to me. The difference between the 144,000 Israelites and the countless multi-ethnic multitude is not in their ethnicity but in their location. The sealed and numbered army of Israel shows the faithful church on earth shielded from apostasy and from God's wrath by our union with the Lamb, bearing His name, sealed by His Spirit. The innumerable assembly of nations shows the victorious church in heaven, 
emerging from the tribulation not through a painless rapture, but through a faithful death. They have known hunger, thirst, exposure, and tears, but the woes to be released on the world in the final judgment on human sin cannot touch those who dwell in God's sanctuary, shepherded by the Lamb. We have two visions. We have one vision of the church militant and another vision of the same church triumphant in heaven, worshiping the Lord, led by the four living creatures, the 24 elders. We have these two visions of the same group at the same time. What this suggests to us is exactly what we read elsewhere in the Bible. I'm here on earth right now, and it's September 25th of 2022, and you and I are in a battle. And there's people who aren't here today because they're in the battle deep, and they need us. They need us bad. They need God bad. They need the power of the living spirit within them very badly, and they need all the miracle-working power of God. I can think of three or four, but then there's a lot more that I know, don't know about. And you need it. We're in the battle. How are we going to conduct ourselves, faith family, at the landing? In the battle. What are we going to do? Are we phony or are we real? Are we serious or are we playing games? What does the battle look like here? And at the same time, every one of us, in a num- group too big for any human to number, God alone can number, from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, are gathered in heaven right now, worshiping the Lamb. Yeah. Okay. That stretches your, my tiny little brain. It's true, though. We're there and we're here. That's what Revelation chapter 7 says. That's the answer it's giving to where in the world is the church and who can stand when the chaos of God comes crashing down. The church is protected, militant, 144,000 on the earth and it's in battle and the church is also at home and enjoying worship of the Lamb at rest before the face of God. This beautiful dual vision picture is exactly what we saw in Christ himself. He's both the Lion of Judah and the Lamb of God. The church is both the church militant and the church triumphant at the same time. Which means we read this passage in front of us asking this question. How does our identity, worshiping the Lord in heaven in each one of these four verses, help us to battle now? How do these verses, each one, help us to battle right now? Four answers. Four ways the glory of heaven invades our battle today. Verse 9. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes, peoples, and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and with palm branches in their hands. The glory of heaven invades our battle now by showing us we join with all the nations of the earth cleansed by the blood of Christ, clothed in white robes, to worship him with our public praise. That's what palm branches are for. Our battle is to join with all the nations of the earth, cleansed of our sin, and making public statements of praise. This is exactly what this verse means to have happen in the lives of the Asia Minor churches. Don't let your praise and your 
declaration of your clothing in white, your being ready for the bridegroom, having been forgiven of your sins. Don't let that be corked in. Don't let that be silent. Don't let people know you for days and months and years and have no idea this is who you are. Don't, let, don't go to work and have people figure out a year or two after you've been working there that you're a Christian living in this reality. Don't let your Christian faith be shelved and compartmentalized and put away so that hardly anybody around you knows that this is how you think of yourself because it's who God thinks of you. Make sure that your clothing in white and your public praise with those palm branches and your love for all the nations is so very clear that you live with it on your sleeve. You share it freely. You're going to pray in public settings in the break room before you eat. You're going to pray in restaurants. You're going to be bold as you walk down uh, into parks or out into uh, grocery stores or other public settings. Online, you're going to freely share the way that your robes were washed clean by the blood of the Lamb and the way your praise to God is like a palm branch waving openly and publicly and your love for all the nations is going to define you and me. No one's going to have to wonder, oh, I can tell those people from the landing, yeah, they've been with Jesus. Who can stand before the mighty wrath to come? These are who can stand who engage in the battle this way. This promise here in verse 9 is a complete fulfillment of exactly what God told Abraham back in chapter 17. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make you into nations. Kings shall come to you, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant. God said that to Abraham in chapter 17 of Genesis, and here it's fulfilled. All who believe in Jesus Christ are the offspring of Abraham, Galatians 3.29 says plainly. So we're going to be in heaven, and oh, that it were true now that we had so many, a ministry to so many international students that we could hear people singing in Christ alone in Japanese, Russian, Bengali, Hindu, and Punjabi. Here. Wouldn't it be the coolest thing if we started a ministry to international students and people would come singing those songs in their own mother tongue? Kazakh, Portuguese, Ukrainian, Swahili, Oromo, Swedish, French, Spanish, Mandarin. Oh, and English too. We love the cause of Christ among the nations, not just because we are trying to be imperialistic and colonize the world. No, no. We love ministry to the nations because we love heaven. It's filled with the nations worshiping the Lord. And that's what we're fighting for. You can see why CRT and all the lies about there being different races, there's only one, and all the lies about black and white and all the tension between them all is such an evil, wicked thing. The love of heaven and the love of the nations is the way to obliterate all that hatred of human beings. Nothing will obliterate hatred of human beings better than the glorious love of the nations in heaven and glorious love of the gospel winning their souls on earth. It's no mistake that the minute a believer or a church or a Christian culture gives itself over to these incestuous, ingrown lies that build hatred and tribalism among human beings on a horizontal level, 
is also the group that has completely forgot about the cause of the gospel on the earth. Here we are, clothed in white, cleansed of all our sin. You know if you have never trusted in Jesus Christ alone, you still remain wearing filthy clothes. You know that by simply asking, simply receiving the Lord, you can have your clothes washed clean by the blood of the Lamb. You don't have to have membership in the right church. You don't have to take the mass. You don't have to do anything in this church or any church. You don't come with anything that God finds approving or worthwhile except your brokenness and your need. That's all you bring. And he receives you. He cleanses your robes white as snow, white as snow. He takes away all your sins. He cleanses you from all unrighteousness. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. And that's the person who says, now I'm looking for public praise. Give me my palm branch. I want to wave it and praise the Lord with a mighty public statement of praise. It was a reference to the Feast of Tabernacles when God saved Israel out of Egypt and slavery. So also there's public praise in the life of a genuine believing church where we all with white robes ready to meet the Lord. We know that chaos and wrath is coming, but we also know that before the face of the Lamb we will stand. He will help us stand and we will praise Him even while He is bringing His wrath on the earth. You know what the outcome of Revelation is. It's chapter 18 and 19. Those two chapters are two solid chapters of God bringing His wrath on the earth. I'll just prepare you. You've seen it. You've heard it. You know it's coming. I'm not going to skip it. Wrath of God coming on this earth. Blood rising as high as the horse's bridle. Flowing in the streets. And the people of heaven are praising the Lord for his absolute sovereign justice all the while. If we are to battle now, we battle cleansed in our hearts of sin, seeking all the nations, and desiring to make public praise so plain and so clear that no one would doubt we're a believer. Look at verse 10. Here's the second way glory invades the battle now. And crying out with a loud voice, here's what they say. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. That's the song of heaven. That's what they sing. They sing of this salvation. They themselves are the recipients and beneficiaries of this salvation. They have been saved, not by their own efforts or their own good works, but by the sheer grace of God. And so they sing and never tire to sing, salvation belongs to our God and who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. That is the sovereign God reigning as king and his Lamb who is opening the seals and and exacting his reign on the earth. The key word is the verb belongs. No way heaven could be empty. God owns salvation. He created it. He possesses it. He has all rights over it. He executes it as he wills. This is why the nations can be confident. This is why you can share your faith with confidence. You know that God is drawing men, women, and children from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation so you can share your faith. You don't have to worry about twisting anyone's arm. You don't have to worry if they reject you or receive you. It's not on you. God owns salvation. Salvation belongs to him. 
This should free us. This doesn't, if this ever causes anybody to kick back and coast, they're not reading the Bible correctly. When we recognize that salvation belongs to God, that says, I'm going to share my faith because I can't possibly fail. This is the most triumphant act anyone could engage in. So it was no mistake that when, when Kath and I and Conrad and Susan and Rick and Marilyn were going down on last Monday to see a ship come in at Canal Park, Rick and I were walking along and chatting, and I just enjoyed seeing my friend Rick so much, I, I couldn't even figure out how to tell him how thankful I was that I got to get a hug from him and see him again. And uh, he says, what are you preaching on on Sunday? I said, I'm getting back into Revelation 7, and I'm in 9 through 12, and he says, oh, 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 you don't know how many times being on the field in Ukraine over the last 21 years, I've gone back to Revelation 7, 9, and 10 to keep me there. And I never saw that side of him before. I didn't know he was struggling. I didn't know he had a hard time thinking about that. But of course every missionary struggles with that. And so he goes to Revelation 7, 9 through 10. Salvation belongs to our God. And on his throne and to the Lamb, all the nations will be gathered in. So I'm going to put my head down and stay right here in Kiev, Ukraine. Or Nara, Japan. Or Marseille, France. Or anywhere where the Lord leads you to go. I love this picture of salvation. This is how you stay faithful. This is how you press in. This is how you go hard after God. This is how you fight for faith. You take verses like this and say, for me to share my faith is a battle, but Christ is going to win the battle, so I'm going to share my faith because he's got people he's going to draw to himself from the Ojibwe, from the Navajo, from every nation and tribe and people and language on the earth. Third way, glory invades the battle right now. Verse 11, it creates in us humble worship. It creates in us humble worship. And all the angels are standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They stand before the Lamb. This is heaven worshiping. Who can stand? It's the mighty throng of men, women, and children from all the nations and the elders, the 24, the four living creatures, and all the myriad and myriad and myriad of Angels we've already been told about. They're all standing before the Lamb. And then look what happens. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God. When all the angels and all the elders and the four living creatures all fall down around the throne, you can be sure that all the rest of the people in heaven also fell down. They're not going to stand up in front of the Lamb when all the worship leaders are falling down. They're going to all fall down as well. Humble worship is what's happening in heaven. Two features of this verse teach us how to fight now. One, we fight in humility. We fight on our faces. We don't fight with swords and we don't get up in somebody's nose like we're arguing over a strike to the umpire. No, we fall on our faces. In humility, we recognize we don't deserve to be in the presence of the Lord in heaven any more than we deserve to be in his presence right now. It will be grace for us to be before the Lord worshiping in heaven just as it is grace for us to worship him right now. We will be overwhelmed with humility, but in heaven, we, our humility won't be mingled with pride and who's going to think what of me and all the silly, goofy stuff that, that pollutes our heads right now. In heaven there will be this purity about all who worship there and we will all join the elders and the angels and the four living creatures as they fall in humility before the Lord. 
May the world be struck by our humility. Even as we talk about important issues, even as we disagree, even as we engage in difficult uh, conflicts, may our humility mark us, knowing that we will spend eternity, as it were, standing yet also on our faces before the Lord, graced to stand, graced to lie down in humble worship. The second thing I notice from verse 11 is especially emphasized in the original language, but you can see it repeated even in verse 11. Twice the word around is used. And all the angels were standing around the throne. It's a very clear Greek word that means a circle. They made a perfect circle around the throne. And again, and around the elders. So the elders are in the middle near the throne and the angels have made a perfect circle around the throne. In other words, when we come before the Lord Jesus, we are encircling him. We are in a perfect circle, a community, a church, which is, this word church is based on the Greek word that's here in verse 11. It's the idea that we are a circle We are united and we are around the the Lord Jesus Christ. We worship and trust him, therefore we can trust each other. We worship and trust him, therefore we have a deep trust for each other. In this circle around the throne in worship, we fight very hard not to let anyone be left behind. We fight very hard that no one is lagging behind. We fight very hard that no one goes AWOL and no one suffers alone. We fight as a family, as a team, as a company of brothers and sisters, loved by our King and devoted to one another. Think of the community that we'll have in heaven. Think of the unity and community that we'll have with all those nations and all those who've gone on before and all those who come after us and all those who are dwelling on the earth right now. Think of the absolute, pure, sin-free non-toxic, love-saturated community we'll enjoy in heaven and picture fighting for that here now. Fighting hard for that here now. Prizing that, elevating that, putting that up high so that in humility we worship the Lord and in humility we love one another. And now you can think of a dozen of passages in the rest of the New Testament which command that same thing. But here's an actual vision of it. Picture in your mind's eye. The earth has the 144,000 True Israelite church fighting with heaven's glory invading it. And then picture heaven. And there they are all face down before the Lord. But their arms are interlocked because they love each other so much. Because of what Christ has done for them. They're not ashamed to love each other. They're loving each other so perfectly because Christ has loved them so perfectly. And they have made it. Nothing else is left to be done. Praise his name. Now bring that into your life right now and say, how am I fighting for my marriage and my family and my friends and my church? How am I fighting for this community that Christ gave his blood to buy and he will have? In the 1700s, a very rich young man who had a bright future in finance saw a painting of the death of Jesus Christ and was reflective of the scriptures as he was looking at this painting in Germany and he decided to turn away from his money-making career, which everyone thought was ridiculous, and he began to minister to the impoverished, the homeless and the slaves 
of his city in Germany in the 1720s. He started actually a community in a village called Hernhut because so many slaves were coming to young Nicholas von Zinzendorf and getting saved. 300 people began to form this community and it was really a, a beautiful picture of the bride of Christ. They loved each other and they loved the lost and they had no internet, they had no websites, they didn't have any books hardly, but they had knowledge that the nations would come to the Lord and it was an absolutely triumphant Aaron to go to the ends of the earth and preach the gospel. So out of the 300, they sent off 200 of themselves to the ends of the earth. And they realized both the 200 who were leaving, bringing their coffins with them as their, as their uh, suitcases, and the 100 who stayed back, which fast grew again, they didn't stay 100, were both in such need of prayer that they inaugurated a 24-7 prayer calendar where they invited everyone from the 200 and the 100 to pick an hour of the day and just, as God prompts them, try to be faithful to offer up prayers for those, the 200 who'd gone out, for the nations who would receive them, and for the 100 who stayed, which was fast growing to more. The 24-7 prayer calendar was definitive of the Moravians, as they began to be called, a great movement of gospel-saturated people in the German pietist tradition in the 1700s. Many, including William Carey, who we all often speak of as the father of modern missions, point to the Moravians as the fathers of modern missions. William Carey says that very thing. There's a sense in which the glory of heaven invades our humility and our humble worship and our community love for each other. And we quickly find there's no way I can reach out to that person. There's no way I can do for that person what they need done. There's no way I can be for everybody what they need from you, Lord Jesus. And so there's this overwhelming sense of need and of insufficiency and inadequacy. And God, of course, has given that so that we would be Moravian in our prayers. Finally, verse 12, glory invades the battle with God's perfect presence. Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. What does it mean when it says be to our God? What does that mean? All these seven qualities be to our God? It means he gave those in the first place. It's who he is. Blessing, glory, wisdom, thanksgiving, honor, power, might. He gave those to us and we give them back to him in worship. Which then means this is how we carry out our battles now. This is the character of God. We live out the character of God in our battles now. Blessing, we bless when we're cursed. Glory, we seek God's glory in all things, not our own. Wisdom, we live by the wisdom supplied alone by his scriptures. Thanksgiving, we give thanks in all circumstances, no matter the outcome. Honor, we honor the Lord in everyone in every way. Power, we move in God's power by the Spirit. And might, we trust in the sovereign might of the living God for the means and for the outcome. This sevenfold praise of God is all of these qualities be to God in heaven that he has first granted and deposited in us. And so that's how we battle. The way John helps the early church in Asia to battle well is by giving them a vision of heaven. This vision of heaven is simultaneously true as is the vision of the 144,000 in war on the earth. 
We're to receive these divine gifts that are a foretaste of heaven and battle in them. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Where is the battle in your life? Where is the battle for you right now? Where's the battle for this church? Is the Lord calling us as a church to put in place a 24-7 calendar that of the 24 hours in every day, seven days a week, someone has their name signed up, not because they're going to pray that whole hour, but if God helps them, if he awakens them, if he reorders their mind and if their phone or their calendar or their note written to themselves reminds them, they'll say, oh, it strikes one. And I signed up for one to two. Not praying for the whole hour. But Lord, I know of several things that were published in the email, in the prayer list, and I'm going to name them for you and then I'm going to sleep. Lord, would you and run through the list and then sleep like a baby. What if we had a 24-7 prayer calendar at the landing? Is that crazy? <laughs> I think that's crazy. But what if it's cool crazy? What if it's God crazy? What if it's the right thing to do? I want to fight with you. Not against you, but with you. And I want to fight with the Holy Spirit and for the glory of Christ in Proctor, Duluth, Minnesota, the Twin Ports, United States, and on the earth right now. I don't want to just admire the dead Moravians in their German pietist tradition. I want to be that now. There are people in our body today and at this very hour, you know who they are. You don't know all of it. I don't know all of it. But there are people who need an, a, a battling church for them. A fighting, heaven-saturated, glory-invaded, I know how to battle the way God wants me to battle kind of church. Not just an individual, but a whole church going hard after them. No one left behind. No one lagging. No one gone AWOL. That's the kind of church we have to be. We have to be that kind of church. If heaven is real and that's where we're going, if the battle is real, and yes it is, then the middle gap between the two is a battling church in Revelation 7 style. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you pour out your spirit on this church to clarify and bring to remembrance everything from your word that you have given to me that proves true and to sift out whatever is merely of my own misunderstanding or flesh to be cast away and never to be remembered again. Sift through these things. Show us yourself in these dual visions of Revelation 7. And Lord, if you want to begin some simple, quiet, gracious form of sign-up so that we take the published prayer list or a portion of it and we as a body cover the clock, the day, and the week with prayer. And see you do mighty miracles in the lives of those who feel too far out of our touch. Their, their, their medical need feels so weighty. 
their personal need feels so weighty. Their emotional or mental or spiritual need feels so weighty. And we feel so powerless. No wonder it would be that your people, clothed in white, waving palm branches, face to the ground, arms interlocked, would come to you and say, Lord, achieve great miracles in your beloved ones that we can't even begin to imagine doing ourselves, but we can ask you to do. Sweep through us, Lord, even in these days, I pray. Have your way with us. You love us. We love each other. Grow it, I pray. Deepen it. Sweeten it. Do more than we can ask or imagine. Through Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen. Let's stand and receive.